Collective Nightmares podcast. We are sociologists who talk horror. My name is Marshall Smith. Me and my co-host every week we take a horror movie or a horror adjacent film and we do a detailed, in-depth discussion of the sociological aspects of the film. We take a we take a sociological perspective to the film and uh, discuss it at length. Did you say your name? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, you can cut this out then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Laura Patterson. Um, Marshall and I both have our PhDs in sociology from the University of Colorado at Boulder. And I like that you said horror adjacent. I think often we end up with films that are horror adjacent, even if we intend for them to be full on horror. But horror is the coolest genre. It's the coolest genre for just exploring how we should be as people. And I never, ever, ever tire of digging into these kinds of movies because that's my favorite thing to talk about. So uh, yet again, I'm super happy to be here with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. We watched the Forever Purge, the fifth Purge film in the franchise, uh, still written by James DeMonaco, this time directed by Everardo, Everardo, Everardo Gout, and so this is the Forever Purge 2021. The synopsis from IMDb is all the rules are broken as a sect of lawless marauders decides that the annual purge does not stop at daybreak and instead should never end. And, uh, you know, horror ensues. We did a previous episode on the fourth Purge film, The First Purge, titled The First Purge. By all means, check that out. We're, we're generally... We think both of these films are really interesting, and uh, not to say that the first three weren't, we just haven't gotten around to them yet. All right, we, there will be spoilers in this discussion for this film, The Forever Purge, for the fourth Purge film titled The First Purge. I think that's it. Yep, this doesn't feel like the Forever Podcast. Uh, you want to do some uh, kind of not-spoiler... Starting. I, just oh. I can't do it. I didn't know. I, I thought you were like, like that because I asked you about doing something not spoilery. No, I can't talk with the headphones on my head. It's just, I can't, I can't handle it. Sure. You want to go first or? Yeah, sure. I can. Maybe I can. I felt like this movie was ambitious. I think probably overly ambitious. And I just didn't enjoy the, watching this film as much. I just didn't think it was as fun to watch or as interesting. And I don't know quite exactly what it was that was missing. It was whatever that, I think we've talked about this too, that whatever that is that some some folks have that is, when did we just talk about this? This was like an assemblage of scenes, not a movie. Like it, didn't never just, it just didn't ever congeal for me. Uh, and I think we can talk about some of the reasons why that is, but 
Uh, I think it was. I think it was. Uh, I, I think it's gonna be really interesting to talk about. I'll tell you that. That's pretty much all I got. That's interesting. I had a really different take. I thought it was great. And I thought it did a really good job of tying ideology into a believable plot line. I mean, it came in with an ideological angle super strong, and it didn't deviate at all. And you could tell the entire movie was crafted around that. And I like that. But sometimes the plot suffers because of that. And I felt like in this film, they really pulled it off. The one thing I'll say that I thought was missing that maybe speaks to what you were just saying is that I would like to have seen more of the standard scary purge scenes. And in part, I thought maybe that was, yeah, sorry. Maybe it's because I haven't seen the first two films or if I did, it was so long ago. I don't think I've seen the first two purges. And so maybe they felt like that had just been done already and we didn't need to rehash it. But the whole concept of the purge is terrifying. And when they show the houses getting locked down and the emergency broadcast system comes on, that's scary. And it was scary last time. And I just thought those scenes were way too short in this film. And on the one hand, I'm someone who likes to argue that, hey, like serve the ideology through the whole film. And so you don't really need those to be in there because they weren't what the film was talking about. But when you were talking just now, I thought, you know what, I I think they did need to be in there because we needed to be more scared. I intellectually understood the plight of our main characters, but I didn't feel it the way that I could have felt it if the purge was more terrifying. It, it just you felt more fear for them than I think they're they're fleeing to Mexico and you know what they were trying to get away from just would have had a stronger emotional impact. Okay, yeah, great. I think that's exactly it. I don't think this read to me like a horror movie. I think this read to me like an action film, and I think that's exactly what it was. Uh, is is what you're saying is there what there weren't the tropes or the conventions or whatever there have been of the horror genre that have been in all of the other purge films and i made a mistake the first purge which is the only other purge film that we have done on the podcast is the fourth purge film and this is then number five (laughs) i was like you were were saying that i was thinking i was like no there were three before first purge i'm fine i love it i love an ideologically driven film I think when I say it was ambitious, I think that was the ideology driving and as much as they were trying to do, I don't think they really were able to tie up everything they could. And I felt, I, well, well, obviously we'll talk. So we'll, we'll see what what you got out of it versus what I got out of it and how, or if I'm, if I missed something or I don't know what that, I would say see it, especially if you like the other Purge films. I'm all for it. Go see it. We're gonna we're gonna dig into spoilers uh, and detail and all that here in a moment. So if you want to listen to a minute uh, before you committed to the whole thing, for sure. And I thought it was great. I, I would love to jump in right at the beginning with what the impactful ideology that they got into was, because I don't think it'll take a long time. But I just I just felt like they pulled it off brilliantly. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, go for it. So the film was about power, and it was about understanding the plight of people without power. And saying it makes it seem like it would have been done too on the nose or poorly, but I really honestly think they pulled it off. They used the purge as, I guess, as a, as a way to take our traditionally powerful people in the United States, right? And, and in this film, we've got people who are 
white, they're racist. Sort of subtly so less than like the, what's the name of the political party? New Founding Fathers of America. Yeah, so they're not, they're not them, but they're racist enough. And we get introduced to them as a sort of background dislike for other cultures kind of racism. And they use the purge as as a way to then take those characters really through the plight of the people with less power that they've been judging. And so they put them right in their shoes in a such an on the nose way that, I mean, it's almost comical the way they do it, but I think they pulled it off. I really do. I think they use the purge effectively to do that. And so we get one really obvious, I guess, message from the film, which is directed right at like Dylan, who's our standard, he's our racist emblem for the film. Again, not the new founding fathers, like that extremism, but he's just our sort of everyday racism. Mm -hmm. And we take him through this story that makes him walk in the shoes of the people that he's looked out upon, makes him realize that he, they're the same as he is and that in different circumstances, he would do exactly the same thing they've been doing. He understands then that he's, I guess he's a, he knows that he's deserving of compassion. And I think then realizes that other people were deserving of his compassion and he was wrong in not giving it beforehand. I mean, I think the scene with his baby, when he speaks in Spanish to, you know, the, the people that helped him really hits that home. And so that's the first message. And that, I think doing that honestly would have been enough and a really ambitious and really well done. I mean, they just, they, whoever thought of this and thought, let's take the purge and turn it into this. It was great because it worked so well. It didn't even feel like a reach. It didn't feel like they came in with the in with the ideology and had to like manipulate the film to make it work. I felt like it just worked. But on top of that, I think they also had a message. Dylan's father, I don't remember his name, when he gets shot and he's giving this speech to the person who came in and, you know, vigilante justice, like we used to not have power and now we're going to show you more powerful people what it's like. And he gives a speech to them and that speech felt really important in that moment. And I was confused a little bit because Dylan's father was, he was like sort of a protagonist and sort of not. And then he dies and I was like, what are they doing with that speech? It was just so strange because on the one hand, he's telling the person who came in to pillage his family that he's correct. Like, yes, you know, social stratification is a problem and it's terrible to be on the bottom. And this has been a history of this country. And like, you're right, you're bringing up all these really important issues, which is what our film is about. So that's important, right? But then he ends it by saying something like, you know, if you, basically, if you abuse that power, I don't know how he says it, but if you abuse the the power that you get, you're, you know, you're just like the other powerful people before you. And you're playing right into the corporations or you're whatever you're, you're basically like, you're like the same as the people who've had power before. And then he gets killed, but it it was just like, there was enough truth in that though. I would say not in the tone he used, which got weird and abrasive at the end there that that felt like it meant something. And I think it did because I think there was also a secondary moral in this film for our characters who basically helped Dylan and Dylan's wife at the end of the film and they didn't have to. He was a little bit of a jerk. He was kind of racist, right? And and they have this conversation in the car, like, come on, you don't even like Mexicans, right? Like, they're, they're aware of his feelings toward them. And instead of taking the opportunity to say, rest power away from him and then just not help or hurt him or, you know, 
take it out on him in some negative way. They instead show him compassion and show him the type of compassion they would like to have had from him. And in showing him that compassion, he turns around. And so I think there was also a message in the film about for the people without power too, about how to, how to handle that power when you get the power. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't something like in a rape revenge film, which I know I've critiqued before saying, okay, now you, you have the person with less power, they get power, but they start acting just like the person who was abusing their power beforehand. And like, there's something problematic going on there. I thought this did a really good job of laying out a secondary message on that side as well. But you got no right to complain about the very system you're supporting by picking up that gun and sanctioning the goddamn purge, which is all about money. You know who created the purge, don't you? A bunch of fat, rich businessmen in Washington, D.C. So what would that make you, Kirk? What would it make you? That would make you their lackey and a goddamn hypocrite. They expect you to go out there to do their violence so they can play more golf. So what I hear you saying is... Is... What I hear you saying is, it, through that scene, in the context of the larger film, we we have uh, we have a film that um, presents the the relatively powerful versus powerless, and then when those tables are turned, the relatively powerless having power by having TT and Juan come in at that point and killing off whoever these other cowboys are, it's a condemnation of just flipping sides. Just, well, you you were the abuser, now I'm going to be the abuser. Which, like you said, we've you've critiqued, or we've critiqued with Rape Revenge of, well, if you just flip it, it really doesn't... It, well, there's lots of problems because you're still trapped in the binary, which is... And still one of, I think, of our most interesting questions in the world. So you're saying... I hear you saying the film got out of that binary of oppressor oppressed. We're just going to flip the flip it. We're just going to mirror it and call that uh, call that the film, call that the vengeance or the whatever. Yeah. And it, then it gets past the initial statement of, you know, this approach is wrong. Like Dylan's approach is wrong, which is what I think it, it was first getting at. And I, I do think that's even that by itself, it accomplished well. But I think it gets past that and it says, okay, and how do we, how do we fix this? Right. And the answer isn't just demonize Dylan. It's show Dylan some compassion okay, and, right. you know, let Dylan understand what it's like. Dylan doesn't get it. And Dylan is not necessarily inherently evil or horrible or like beyond improvement. So show him compassion, give him the benefit of the doubt. And Dylan comes out the other side understanding and being yeah. a kinder person, I guess I would say, without having to use force against him as well. Yeah, I like that a lot. I think that's, I think that's, yeah, it's excellent. Laura, I feel like I'm not firing on all cylinders yet, and despite my coffee, my late coffee, so I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm trying to catch up. I don't know if it's because I'm not used to doing this tied up to the film again yet, or what? Uh, Okay, let me do a devil's advocate here and say, what about, or, or is there, does, does the argument hold water that, uh, okay, that's all well and good, excuse me, but the film, 
by having them start in Mexico and come to America and then return to Mexico at the end, leave us with a, a background ideology of, well, if the Mexicans would just stay in Mexico, <laughs> we would be okay. We wouldn't have had to go through all this trouble in the first place. I don't think so. I I think it's far outweighed by the fact that that twist so effectively hit their argument home. And I didn't even feel like they had to try for it. Like the movie actually played into it so well. I, I, I'm going to say no. I, I don't think so. I think it just turned the tables on Dylan. That's all it was about. It was showing Dylan's behavior at the beginning, showing the like I say, kind of subtle racism of, of his whole family group and just all the privilege they had and, you know, checking their security systems on their yeah. phone yeah. and comparing that to, you know, our immigrants who didn't have that sort of security and it didn't have that kind of power. And we have this sort of loose social connections between the two groups. And it just really taught Dylan a really important lesson. Okay. I, I mean, I still, I still just want to ask that because my other... Like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I would be excited to be convinced that this film was as good as the first Purge. I don't know if I'll get there, but I would like, I would love to, I would love to be able to like this movie because my other concern was another big macro background, which was, which was, with the with the exception of like two lines at the end, is so. The New Founding Fathers are the fascist party, are the Republicans in this purge world, purge United States universe, whatever you want to call it. And so they've created the purge. They made it very clear at the very beginning that once they returned to power, they reinstituted the purge. So they're they they're taking it and, and they're attributing it to them. And then throughout the film, there's this Oh, well, the NFFA is now sending in National Guard or military to reestablish order in the cities. And I also have this concern about, are we making them the hero? Because we have this like very short, like, oh, they're the problem. They created this. And then we've got 90 whatever minutes of movie that are, oh, they're trying to restore order. They're trying to be police again. And... Then at the very end, they say the NFFA is being destroyed by their own creation uh, as they cannot contain the purge, whatever. And I was just like, that that for me was maybe the, that for me was another concern where I was like, it's in there that you're not making them the hero of their them creating their own problem. But I don't know if they got it done. And I, I, I actually really liked, I really liked the, there, there was also a moment in the film, I want to say to be fair, or a stretch in the film where I thought, you know, this is great. This is, a, this is really giving some nuanced uh, reference to this notion that by creating social conditions that are so miserable as to erupt into violence and widespread problems it provides pretense for instituting martial law and rolling out fascist police state control of the country and i think with i think they they had moments there where i was like oh they're actually 
getting at that, which is, which is such, I mean, that seems like a, a very difficult thing to get done in the film. And that was something else that I was like, oh, I think that's great. I just don't know if they stuck that landing. So I don't know if you thought anything about that either. Because I like what I like what you are, said. I was, I guess I was somehow, I was, I was zoomed out. I was at all this macro and I, I didn't really get too much of, or I wasn't as thoughtful about what, what you're talking about with the, the interpersonal nuances of the group, which I think you made a great case for. So let me jump back to your first point. I think there was a really important scene at the beginning of the film when Chiapo, was that his name? When he was on TV and he makes some statement that, you know, you can't control this kind of hate. Okay. And the whole NFFA, the whole response that the NFFA had, I thought really played into that line. And that line, when it first came up on the, the TV, it felt like it was going to be a moral of the story. And I think it was. Mm-hmm. And so that to me felt like, well, again, it just reiterates the sort of interpersonal point I just made, but like unleashing a little bit of that doesn't work. It's not going to, you're not going to burn it out. You're going to fuel it and it's going to grow more. And the only way to fight that kind of hate is actually with understanding and patience and tolerance. And what I think the message was, like I said, the secondary message of the film, which was don't attack the people who hate you with hatred back as soon as you have power. Like that's not what's really going to accomplish anything. And so I feel like that fits with the NFFA then trying to come in and stop things and say, oh, we wanted to like just explode this for a day and then we're done. And it didn't work because of what Chiapo said. It doesn't, that kind of hate doesn't, you don't run out of it. You breed more of it. Okay. Now that's very interesting because now we're back to human smoke where I'm all with you with, with the Dylans of the world, with a uh, father. That's, that, that's, now we're back to, even uh, even our Chapo was like, well, fuck him. We got to kill him. <laughs> They've got to die. <laughs> so uh, I love the movie. I think it was good because I'm with you. Like, But for, for my understanding of your position, you should not really be okay with that because we're, we're back to that's all well and good when you like it. You have like social order and uh, some sort of like avenue for creating some empathy and you have circumstances where you have some sort of interpersonal connection that you can leverage and all these sorts of things. But widespread, we're back to, I mean, even which again, the film, I got to give it credit then. And I like what you're saying is, yeah, it's not, oh, a bunch of hippies sat out and occupied some square in New York. They picked up guns and decided we're going to kill the fucking fascists who have gone into the uprising. So anyway, so I don't know where you're at with that. And herein lie our differences. <laughs> I I don't think I don't draw that same line that you draw. I just don't think we draw it at the same, same. place. Or at least you're willing to sort of hand wave comically at the line being much lower than I would put the line. <laughs> Like you're following me, right? So I don't, I don't think we necessarily disagree on that, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with the film saying there is a line somewhere beyond which point compassion is not the okay. uh, practical. I almost want to say, you know, it, it, it might not. Yeah, feasible. That's the right word. It's not really a feasible approach. That line, I'm sure, exists. But if you and I were assessing 
circumstances and, and people and whatever and trying to decide where to draw that line, I'm going to put more in the possibly redeemable basket. I mean, that's just, I think, sure. a different approach we have to the world. Sure you are. Yes. Right. I'm sure I am not. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, okay. But since they didn't parse it out too finely, I guess they got away with probably appeasing both of us in this, the way the film was set up. Because they didn't, they didn't draw a real fine spectrum <laughs> and then start figuring out exactly where do you put that line. Um, they made it. They made it fairly straightforward and clear for us. I, I did feel like, that's so funny, I did feel like some of the dialogue was pretty heavy-handed. It was pretty, that's it. That was pretty heavy-handed. I don't, I can't think of anything off the top of my head other than like the end where he's like, this is our last stand. It's like, you don't need to say that. We, we see all the montage of you, whatever. And there were a couple moments like that. Or, or I guess maybe one of them was in the truck when they had, oh, we're going to cut the shit. And Dylan's like, no, it's not that I don't like this or that. I just think we should stick with our own. So like you said, sort of this lower level racism or passive racism. There there were just things that rung in my ear, like th- that could have been tuned a little bit more. But I agree. But we're, we're at the same time. Maybe that is where the dialogue needs to be for a film like this to really land and be accessible to a wider audience. This is not, and I respect that. I'm not saying that as any kind of a, a me like looking down on it. This isn't a highbrow film. This is, uh, I mean, I guess it was released in theaters, even though mostly I think it was streaming because we're still COVID theater situation, but it was not high art film it was like here this is we've we've talked about this too like this was entertaining it was accessible it was kind of fun it's dealing with really heavy loaded topics in a lot of america and so i mean if that's their greatest sin is to have some some heavy dialogue you know that's fine i totally can totally be okay with that I had the exact same pretentious line of thought. Exactly what you just said. Okay. And so, I agree. I was mostly okay with it. I laughed out loud when they said the American Dreamers at the end. I mean, I I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I was willing to let them get away with it in part because the film was clearly totally wrapping up. So I felt like it was just like, hey, if you haven't gotten the point of the film yet, we're just going to like really tell you. And if you already got it, this isn't going to bug you too much because you're already like packing up your stuff and getting ready to yeah, walk out of the theater. Right, like, right. So we'll just just throw it in there right at the end. Totally. Credits have almost rolled. We, we understand. Yeah. I, I'd like to get back to something else you said, though. Please. And I, first of all, make sure I'm clear what you were saying. And then also it, it struck an interesting train of thought that may or may not relate to what you were saying. So I just dealt with your first point that oh, had to do okay. with the... NFAA people and were they being depicted as heroes and again I'll argue no because I think that I think it, I think they were being used to illustrate Chapo's point and I, I think fairly yeah. well actually okay. but second you were talking about social structure and how that can I guess well say a little more about what you were saying there it's well it's like the um, corollary I'm looking right over here at Naomi Klein's shock doc- doctrine it's like the opposite of that, right? Like the shock doctrine, so I saw the book, you know, referencing it, is, and, and disaster capitalism or Naomi Klein's ideas where, where ma- any sort of massive upheaval, up, 
any sort of massive upheaval, whether that's natural disaster or economic crisis, or I don't think she could have foreseen this, but pandemic is, uh, produces this like, cleaves open the social structure with enough anomie that the folks who have power and privilege and are insulated from the immediate requirements of survival because of that uh, shock to the system can then take advantage of that to gentrify land or take over property or resources that they didn't have access to before or whatever, take advantage of it, take advantage of everything and anything they can. And so the, the kind of corollary or inverse, I don't know, whatever the fuck it is that I'm saying is you have to have some sort of baseline stability in order to, in order to be able to sort of reason with or gain or have opportunity to get some sort of empathy. And I don't know if that's universally true, but I think that is just in, in itself, itself is an interesting question of, well, for both movies and for life is, I think in movies in particular, we, we, we are presented in movies so often with crisis is the opportunity whereby people can fall in love or figure out whatever they were missing in their key to life or have this great revelation about, well, now I have empathy and I can understand the, the circumstances that I was putting someone else in as Dylan did in this film versus this versus these things where, well, if you're in a crisis situation, that's not what you're trying to do. You're not, I mean, that's works great for films, but is that really actually something that happens in real life? Should it, is that a larger kind of ideological, is that a, is that an ideological trope that pervades movies because it works with, with drama and with evoking emotion, but really is selling a false narrative because it would certainly seem like there is an argument worth exploring at least that uh, I mean, this is Maslow, right? You have to have some sort of baseline hierarchy of needs met before you can start to actually reason with folks. So was she arguing this or you're taking her argument and kind of extrapolating it out to Her film? argument is capitalism and disaster capitalism is, Klein's argument is, is something that at this point has been leveraged by the powerful and the privileged. And I mean, she wrote that in particular, I remember in response to Katrina. Katrina wipes out all these neighborhoods. Really what that meant was, we're gonna privatize all of New Orleans schools. We're gonna be able to buy up all of this land that had actually historically been owned by people of color, but was really valuable land because it was like beachfront and all this, but they would never sell that. They would never, we could never get them out because you can't just, well, at least 10 years ago, you can't just round up folks of color and kick them out without some sort of explanation or pretense and something like a flood is perfect great wasn't our fault but hey we happen to have money now to be able to rebuild and you don't sorry that's not our fault it's like this perfect like creation of opportunity so this is kind of the opposite of that where where instead of crisis being this means of further advancing exploitative capitalism in the films, it's like crisis is this advance or is this opportunity to further some sort of empathetic conversion or character building, and and that's like this 
fundamental notion in movies and happened here as well. And I, and I just am wondering if that's, I mean, I, that's a, I think it's a great question. I don't think I have any idea. Do people really come around in moments of crisis and terrible situation? Maybe you did more with some of the disaster sociology than I have of. That's an interesting argument. What I know of the disaster research is that people tend to act in very pro-social ways following disasters and that that's not how it's depicted. We don't think that's the case. And I mean, we as society in general, and if you look at films and if you look at like, I think this actually came up in our discussion of crawl. um, We have this idea that people are going to loot and people are going to engage in all this sort of antisocial behavior, but the research dating really far back and, and just so much so that, I think disaster researchers feel like this is such old news. We don't even need to talk about it anymore is that people really engage fairly pro-socially and they form communities of compassion. I think was somebody's term for it and really try to help each other out. And there's a social leveling and really that we band together. And also that, and and again, these are for disasters that were not human induced. It's different if you feel like other people are to blame, but for disasters like a flood or something that you don't immediately feel like another person caused or, you know, the negative power structures caused again in a fairly immediate sense. And there is research recently saying that a lot of our disasters are starting to sort of bleed in that direction. Like if you look at wildfires or you look at things related to climate change, how people are perceiving them as not just random acts of nature, but something that people did cause and how that might change our reaction to them. So I don't know if that, I can't speak too much to that other than to just say there is an area of research looking into that. But people also tend to be happier following disasters. And again, I'm talking about disasters that people attribute to nature, not to other people. But communities tend to come together. You lose all of your consumerist junk you didn't need anyway. Um, we, We talk about this in my class when we talk about consumerism, and it's just a very interesting point that we think we need all of this stuff to be happy, but actually research shows that people tend to be happier when they lose all of it. Like in disasters that destroy property, but not human life, people tend to emerge with a greater sense of connection to their neighbors, a greater sense of community idea of what's important and just generally tend to rate themselves as happier than they would have without the disaster (laughs) and immersed in their fortress of stuff and not knowing who their neighbors are. Lori gestures generally around my apartment. Because <laughs> I'm absolutely a collector of stuff. <laughs> That's okay, I could laugh at myself. Well, so you're saying that that's specifically not human created. So I don't, so I mean, we're still translating from empirical research to a film. So I'm not totally, even though, you know, if this were research, we could we'd just throw that out. But here it's like, okay, so there is at least some template there it sounds like there's a considerable amount of research that this sort of empathetic conversion and this these sorts of community oriented actions and behaviors is brought about by uh extraordinary circumstances absolutely plausible great great i'm happy to give credit to the film then um as a quick aside that makes it really interesting to me and sadly strategic that trump and the republicans were then, sounds like, utilizing that kind of understanding in trying to attribute specifically COVID to Chinese lab. Because it it sounds like whether they knew it at some level consciously or not, or it was just, you know, they got lucky and they're racist anyway, 
of, well, if this is something that just emerges out of the fact that, I don't know, whatever, that disease happens in, in the world, we would have a very different reaction. But if they can pin it on, oh, it's some Chinese lab, we have people to blame. And those are people that we have lots of other opportunity to scapegoat and demonize and stigmatize. Um, that can be much more politically strategic for us. I don't know if I ever really, I don't know if I thought that their effort at, and they're like being adamant about attributing it to some sort of Chinese lab was, was strategic at that level. I thought, I don't know. I just thought it was like crackpot. It's like, it's Trump. is like the fucking, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this. He's like the fascist political whisperer. Like he's fucking, no matter what he does, he somehow figures out like the most just terrible, effective, strategic, racist, fucking despicable thing. And it's like, he just does it without, it's like, he, I don't even know. It's like, ah, I just do that on my day off. Oh, it's not like I was trying. He just like happens into it. Cause at core, he's the, such a, noxious toxic bringer of death and and hate <laughs> anyway and it's sort of like mad lib magic eight ball fashion <laughs> yeah, except he always gets like the funniest fucking line <laughs> right like he stacked the cards against humanity deck so he got all the like <laughs> that's fucking just amazing uh, well, that's very interesting. Well, I'm so glad you have that expertise to be able to to throw that in here. Oh, there are like um, a few things I want to get in, and I don't oh, want to lose please. any of them. But just on that exact topic, because this is super interesting, there's talk in disaster research about something called the panic myth, which is similar to this idea that we're going to, you know, loot and go crazy and be antisocial, that people are going to panic, that we're not going to behave calmly, that we're not going to, you know, th that there's going to be major social upheaval. And like I said, it's just common knowledge within that field of research, but it's something that we as a broader society just still believe and do all the time. And you see it all the time in movies. You see it even one of the articles that I have my students look at looks at um, Red Cross literature and it's Red Cross literature directed at natural disasters. And even they start with like, stop, be calm, don't panic. And it's like even the Red Cross who like should presumably be aware of what actually happens in disasters feeds into this myth. Huh. It's like such a strong, I don't know, trope, whatever you want to call it in society. We believe it so much, even though it doesn't seem to be true. And it's just really huh. fascinating. So yeah, look for it out there because it's everywhere. You dropped the term anime a while back and didn't define it for our non-sociologists. And I just feel like that would be a good thing to, to do. Durkheim. Anime is the, the, the loss of norms for behavior and that loss of norms for behavior is structural or macro i think in the sense that at least as, as i remember theorized by durkheim it is produced by a change of circumstances so that there aren't templates for or guidelines for expectations for behavior so when people don't know what to do and they really don't have a, even a reference point. And I guess the pandemic would be a great example of like, or at least early pandemic. Again, I'll, I'll remember those first couple of nights when people really didn't know what to do. It was like, well, we're just going to stay home. We don't know what to do here. Everybody's kind of worried. And then I'll just leave it at that. I wanted to speak to your point that I think 
I, okay, I don't know if I'm exactly speaking to your point or not that you made about Sorry. Naomi Klein's yeah. situation, but I'm going to say what that made me think of because it's interesting. I liked in this film how I liked the scene when Adela's on the rooftop and the military people, I guess they're not military, but the people who are paid to protect people were asking her, you know, how to do, learn how yes. to do this. And she doesn't answer there, but she answers later on in the film when she's speaking to, what's her name, the blonde woman? The blonde is Harper, the sister. Prager's wife is uh, Cassidy. I don't ever think we actually got her name in the film. Okay, I think she's speaking to Cassidy. And she tells the whole story and says, you know, she banded together with some other people and they were fighting the cartels. And she also mentions when she's on the rooftop that, you know, there are places in Mexico where it sounds like this every night. And I liked that the film... I thought really contrasted her experience with our experience as viewers of the film, because we see this as a horror film, as some fantastical story of the Mm. purge. And, you know, this is something that could clearly Mm. never happen. And, you know, it's so extreme and whatever. And by her sort of normalizing that experience, like, oh, well, if you were from a different culture and had a different set of experiences, this wouldn't seem like some crazy horror film to you, you naive viewer, because I felt like she was talking to me in those Mm -hmm. moments. This is just something that people go through and it's terrible, right? And you understand in this horror film how the main characters like deserve asylum in Mexico because this is a complete breakdown of, I mean, nothing like this ever happens. How could a world like this, this exist? Obviously, you know, everybody, all of humanity needs to bend over backwards to help the good people who got trapped in the middle of this. And she's essentially saying, hey, this is exactly what's going on with a lot of people who want to be refugees in the United States. Like they're seeking refuge because they're coming from exactly the same thing that you're watching in this silly fiction film. Mm. And you think it's crazy. And so just on the topic of social structure and how that can influence people to behave in certain ways and how a lack of understanding of societal circumstances that someone else is sitting in can lead you to not understand those people. I loved that. I love those points in this film and I thought they did it really, really well. And I felt a bit ashamed as an audience member when she was saying that thinking I'm sitting here with my popcorn, you know, watching the purge movie because it's this again, crazy, fantastical tale. And she's like, yeah, this is people's lives. Hmm. Well, I think that I I think that's an excellent point. I think it's great. I mean, I'm I'm an easy target, but you're definitely winning me over on a lot of this. I want to like, I like these films. I want to like this film. I have these weird kind of background concerns, probably because it's such a, it's, this was almost like too close to a lot of what's happening, I feel like, in in the U.S. today. And The Forever Purge, which was the other film, the fourth film that we did an episode on, there were a lot of parallels, but it wasn't, it wasn't, I don't know, it just didn't seem so possible it did, in, but in a different way. I don't know. Here, here's one complaint that I don't think you, or, or I think you're probably going to agree with me on is, so this is the same, same guy who's written all five, James DeMonico. And more power to you, Mr. DeMonico, James, if I may. You still can't get a woman character right for a whole film. Keep trying. It just, you can't. She had She has this training... She almost uses it. She uses it like a couple times, but every time was like, oh, 
we got this badass woman here. We, she hasn't done anything in like an hour. We should probably have her kill like one guy, right? Oh yeah, let's have her get the movie theater. She'll kill one guy and then she'll go back to being the guys are leading and in front and behind and she's just along for the ride and she's kind of, she has a gun but she's not ever actually shooting anyone. She's not she's just not agentic and she's not capable and she's not following through in the same way that these other guys are, even though we get no story about why any of these other guys have any skill or if they have any skill. I mean, at the very end, Juan and Dylan can rope the guy. Great. We have some background to understand that they have some cowboy skill, but their whole capability throughout the entire rest of the film of they can shoot guns and they can figure out how to navigate all of this and whatever there's no explanation it's oh well they're guys so obviously they know exactly what to do why ever ask why ever ask adela who apparently has had very direct clear obvious extensive experience with exactly this kind of thing to the point that it is mundane for her because she lives in it let's not ever actually have her lead anything or organize anything or do anything or suggest anything she'll just be like a passenger in the car and then we Harper, same thing. She'll like, she's, I mean, Harper is great because she's the one who, who tells Dylan like, no, we owe it to him. We wouldn't be alive. We're going to do it. More power to her. And then she has a gun too. She ever use it? No. At the end, it's like, oh, make sure she gets across the border safe. And Harper's like, oh yeah, I will. And takes the shotgun. Never does anything with it. Never, never does anything with it. She... The only thing she does in the whole film is use her whiteness, which is cool. Good for you for like positive. She holds up the uh, flag and puts her white face in the window. So they think that they're on their team. But the, the gender thing, it was just like, it just made me think of Forever Purge or First Purge. I'm sorry, excuse me. It just makes me think of the First Purge where the the lead woman in that is this like badass community organizer and she's not scared of the gang members and she's not scared of the police and she's not scared of anything. And she's clearly smart and strategic and has all this, like all of this capital, cultural capital and social capital. And by the end of the movie, she's totally just damsel. She's just like, she's just damsel. She's the princess who's being saved by what was his name? Uh, I don't remember what his name is. And, first purge but wow the the gender stuff it's like oh man you've done so good james you, you've the the and it's it's kind of even more painful because we've now he's he's written five purge films he directed three of them all of them take really an interesting piece of this concept and it doesn't feel rehashed it doesn't feel like he's just cranking out a sequel to capitalize on success. It's like chewing off something else. Like last time it was it was race and urban and poverty and political manipulation. And what you were saying about the pro-social responses to panics, we talked about that with the first purge where initially everybody's like, oh, hey, we get the day off. Let's have a, a, a party, you know? And they have to like stoke the violence and fear and seed it and like send in confederates to to manipulate the circumstances because the fascists are disappointed because everybody doesn't just start slaughtering each other even though it's like a couple thousand bucks or whatever and, and so it's like all oh, that's so great and then 
And then I don't even remember the first one is this very individual, like confronting race and and privilege and and capitalism. And the second one, I feel like, was a, a little bit broader scale. And there was something to do with politics more in there. I can't remember exactly. It's been a long time since I've seen two and three. And then this one, again, it's not it could absolutely just be a re, re rinse and repeat sequel. No, I'm going to take on and, and in 2021, whenever this was made, maybe it was made to be released last year. It probably was uh, as like a cautionary tale if Trump gets reelected. But it's immigration and it's it's not just immigration. It's across the southern border immigration, Mexican illegal immigration in particular. And this like working class or working poor middle upper middle class versus like the elite actual billionaires who we don't ever see who are are really the ones who are profiting all this and taking on all these big issues i mean done so well with so many things and with gender it's just like well we'll give her a story and like a a token she does shoot something does something and oh it's just it's painful in, in, I think it's like I said. I think it's almost worse in contrast to how and convincingly you've argued with this one, Laura. How well he has done so many other things and tackled these challenging, enormous social issues. And God, and then I mean, sexuality has just been apparently just is just ignored. Okay, but you could at least do could do something better with gender. It's like he's so close. Two movies in a row, man. I don't even remember the first movies with I remember I remember two being really terrible with gender. I don't remember why. But the last two, it's like you started. You had a chance. You had yourself set up. All you had to do was just carry it out just till the end of the film. And it's like, oh, you only like got like 20 minutes worth the gender of a woman character in you. And like after that, it's like just oh well, let's get back to the real people, <laughs> man. I don't know. I hate to dump on. I hate to dump on him because, like I said, so much of it is so good, but wow, it's terrible. All right, that's my gender rant. Sorry, I didn't know that was going to be as much as it was. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have anything else to say. I totally agree with all of that, including though the part at the end where you were talking about what's so great about the film and his films in general. And I had the same thought that like this was really ambitious, but I thought he did really well. And just like you said, it didn't have to be that thoughtful. It's a franchise now. I mean, it could have gone the way of like almost every other horror franchise ever where it doesn't have anything useful to say anymore. Right. And it didn't at all. And it, I was just really impressed with the way it took the story and used a really plausible play out of this setup to like, just yeah. hammer home the point that it was trying to make. And it did so, so well. And it did so on a couple different levels. And so I'm still going to argue it was great. But yes, I mean, the gender stuff was terrible. I agree. The heterosexual imaginary at the right. when the couples reunited almost made me laugh. Because it was just in a row. It was like right in a row. It was like, oh, we've survived the crisis and we get to kiss and we get to kiss. <laughs> Here's, you know, and that's funny you say, I totally agree with you on that. And it's almost worse that then T.T. and Parker didn't get together. 
Because then you would have had the, as long as you're being heavy handed with all this shit, have the fucking interracial couple get together. Oh, you're right. Have them, you know, you don't have to kill the one guy. You just don't. Everybody else survives. I understand you want to kill someone. That's a dramatic moment and somebody has to die. But just, just have the interracial couple. You're totally right. You're totally right. And like you said, they did everything else so heavy handedly. And I still think very well for being that heavy handed. Yeah, but no, I, I'm not, I, I'm with you. I, 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 I totally appreciate and enjoy and agree with a lot of what you're saying. I don't think it like scratched my itch quite the way you did, but it did for you. But I agree. I liked it. I, I'm convinced by a lot of your arguments that I'm. it's okay for me to like it as much as I wanted to. But yeah, or have him hurt. But he, they still get their thing. They had the whole vibing peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> I mean, you might as well just give them hot dogs and buns. <laughs> Speaking of heavy handed, like, oh my God. But anyway, they just do it. Just fucking put them together. Should we talk about the native people? It's, it's interesting. Uh, if nothing else, I'll give the film credit that it actually said on camera, you know, we took these lands from the native folks and the native folks were in this, still in this really um, interesting uh, border. What is the, what is Anzaldua's concept that's like, it's like the, it might be the Spanish word for border or like mestizo. It's in that about about these uh, about border crossings and border areas. Does that mean anything to you? Any of that? Well, I'm just sucking as a sociologist tonight. Anyway, had this really interesting like we exist in alongside all of this, but in our own space that is still basically we kept we have problems on on all sides or on both sides, and you folks are passing through. And we're still here and we're kind of like trying to push the good people one way or, or the other, or help them. But ultimately we're still here and we've been driven to the lands that are like unnavigable by you folks. I don't know. That was just, you know, I don't, I think it was really pretty well done. But I just thought it was interesting that any of that was actually on screen and that it was acknowledged. That's, that's again, that's, that's a credit. Didn't have to make it that. Sicario doesn't have any anything about native folks. Like I've seen that movie a couple times. I don't remember. I'm sure I don't remember anything. It's all cartels in Mexico and fucked up DEA mercenaries in the U.S. And that's pretty much the whole, you know, world that is imagined. I agree with that. I had a little bit of a concern at the beginning about the whole point that I've raised before about darker skinned people being associated more with the environment and with mm. nature and the yeah, horse whisperer horse. situation. Yeah. And a little bit of me wanted to pull some of that back up with Chiapo's character. And I, but I don't think, it, I know, I, I th- don't think that was a problem. I agree with you. I think it was interesting that it was there. I don't have a whole lot to say beyond that. That was an interesting little discussion with, with dad where it was kind of teasing out. It's like, no, he hates you because you have better access to hegemonic masculinity in this moment, not because he's racist. <laughs> Which is like, oh, it's a whole lot better, Dad, but okay. <laughs> I appreciate the nuance. 
that you're sorting out here. That's not a usually a discussion we see on screen. I love how you put that, Marshall. And again, this film was really thoughtful. Yeah, they did so much more than was necessary. What was necessary was zero, basically. They could have gotten a Purge sequel by doing nothing. And instead, they bit off these hugely relevant social issues that are incredibly timely and did it really well. And and with levels of nuance that just were not needed, but are really appreciated. Absolutely. Yeah, I absolutely want to sing its praises as much as I want to want to drag it for um for the issues i, I got two sm- small things should be anything else big is there anything else big the, the masks have always been emblematic of the purge whoever in this film whoever's the production design or costume design who took an integrated weaponry hardware into the masks themselves the like shotgun casings or i don't know whatever it is into like the gas mask and the bullets as the teeth kudos awesome perfect escalation of the mask and adaptation of the mask like iconography awesome that and there was some there was just some really excellent camera work i wish that would have slowed down just a little bit in the beginning but in particular when they're moving through when they've gotten out of the 18-wheeler cab and they're moving through el paso to the border, but well, the the Rose place in the bar or whatever, there's a long shot. I would bet it was over a minute. And it's not an easy on it like it was a it was a single take and it was them like moving through blocks of city and I was just like, wow, when are they gonna cut? When are they gonna cut? Cause it wasn't, um, I'm trying to think of other really famous long takes, but it wasn't just like moving through a hallway of a, of a restaurant or something. I mean, they were out in like combat and there was like vehicles moving and there were other people and there was firing and they were leading multiple people and they were, they were mo- turning, you know, they would get to a corner and the camera would swing and then everybody would move a different direction. I was like, wow. So there was a lot of really excellent just filmmaking. And I think that, was great to see. I, I just want to shout it out. There was almost no soundtrack that I noticed, which was also really kind of interesting. I think I would just like in closing to hit on the lack of fear again. Yeah, That's my one big critique with the film, aside from the gender stuff, which you said, I mean, which you, I think, made a great case for and was terrible. It would have served it better to be scarier. And and I agree that it was more of an action film. There was more chase, but less fear. And this what this film is tapping into are things that I think have the potential to be very scary. Mm-hmm. And the isolation from other people and t- treating people with suspicion and you know that the fear that the purge would bring could have been done better. I think it would have made it a better film and it would have made it a better horror film. And I know I've said this a thousand times, but what horror can do often is engender empathy through fear and through really understanding what someone's terrible circumstances are like. And I think this film approached it a little more intellectually and a little more conversationally than I would like them to have. Or maybe it's not even that I don't want that piece there, but I wish they would have done it just viscerally and emotionally too. And I think that component could have been a lot stronger if they had played up the horror yeah yeah which they totally did in first purge 
They were just those convention. They're, 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 they use the tropes, which which is good because that signals to us as an audience that this is a hor- horrific moment. And that I, I wonder if there wasn't also a little bit of that wasn't a little bit uh, left out because we really didn't have like a face of evil. Like we had Skeletor in First Purge, and then we had the like. We had the masked mercenaries of the fascists, which we clearly, like, we didn't know personally, like, we didn't get a backstory for those folks, but we understood that they were symbolically this threat. And here, we, we really didn't have until Father, which was, like, two-thirds, three-quarters of the movie, Mother and Daddy, or whatever they're, I think that's all the names we ever got of them, Alpha Leader. And that almost felt like... It was it was okay. That was kind of clumsy, clunky, sweaty, and and I think that helps too in First Purge that we had Marissa Tomei and we had I can't remember, but we had the like intercut of the politicians like and we had a little bit of them so we like know there is a face behind this. Like you said in that one in the in the crucial dialogue between Dad and and uh, whoever the other cowboy was. He references these fat cats in DC, but we don't ever get a face for that. Nothing, not even a, like a talking head stand-in, you know, president or business leader or somebody on the news. You know, as all this news, we got reporters, but we never got like like first purge where the where the guy comes out and was like, "Oh, I think this is actually really excellent." Or what? Just anything to like attach that to? No, that's a there's a person or there are people behind that. That might have helped a little bit. I think it may have, but I also think just silence and disconnection and suspicion yeah, could oh, have sure. been a, played up as a better enemy. It's like when the mm. when the purge first mm. happens in the film, it's over so fast. Mm. And on the one hand, I was glad because I was like, wow, where are they going with it? They ended the purge already. This They're going to do something different. Mm-hmm. And that's nice. But they could have spent twice as long, at least, in there without overdrawing it and i think just built up that fear more so that you would have experienced more relief when it was over and our characters were relieved i wasn't relieved i wanted to see more of it i thought why is it over so fast it's a purge movie and it's done already like what's going on and so i I think they could have lingered there and made that feel differently absolutely and they could have lingered on what's happening with it extending beyond when the purge closed like oh yeah milk that like oh i'm going around i'm doing my thing why is nobody at work oh somebody got shot well all that crime's supposed to be over the purge is over oh what's going on like they could have stuck in that moment and like like you said built the suspicion like people still doing this can i go back to normal or what's going on here they could have totally milked that i got one more thing which then we can transition to grading it which is which is either call your film purge ever after and use Purge Ever After and Ever After Purge throughout the movie, or call your film The Forever Purge, and in the film, call it The Forever Purge. Don't name your film Mock Bucking One Thing, and then use a different expression throughout the entire fucking film. (laughs) God. Like, happily ever after, purge ever after, it works. It's fine. It's great. If you're going to do that through that in the entire film, 
Just comment. Everybody knows all you need is Purge in the title. Like you said, this is the fifth movie. We get it. It's a franchise. We know about it. There was a TV show. If you have Purge in the title, we understand. You can call it Purge Ever After. We can get that. But then, oh my God. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> drove me nuts the whole movie. I'm so glad you, I got to remember to rant about that. I love you, Marshall. <laughs> and I didn't even notice. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. <laughs> Alright, so the last segment of the podcast that we do is we grade the film. Basically, we take an overview of everything we've discussed and and weigh it all, however formally or informally we do it, and come up with a, come up with a, here's our grade on it. Kind of like a, kind of like a rating of Rotten Tomatoes deal, except we are mostly worried with ideology and message and representation uh, and entertainment value and that sort of thing is secondary if not and a low secondary versus we think or most reviews i think are flipped where entertainment and kind of technical qualities acting and such are really the priority a for sure and you know i have knocked down movies that have bad gender components rather far when the film itself is fairly empty which often they are in this case, I think there was so much good in the film, and I think it did so many things so well that even with that gender stuff, I'm going to keep it up there. I'm going to say A. <sighs> That's, it was so close, Laura. Um, I, I think I can go high A minus, but I think with the, I, and I'm going to add on the, the lack of like horror, the lack of the emotional experience of fear as attached to, or as my experience of watching it as a viewer between that and the, the gender piece, I just, I'll give it a high man, I minus. I'll hit it at the 92 or whatever. That's fine. I respect your A. That was easy. Yeah. All right. We appreciate you listening all the way the, to the, to the bitter end. If you got here, despite the Durkheim. <laughs> You could edit it. Yeah, I could. Uh, tangent, we'll see how that goes. We, we really appreciate it. We uh, we teach. We have other jobs. We do this for free. We make it available for free. Our entire catalog is available for free on Spotify or our website, collectednightmares.com. We would appreciate it if you would follow us on Instagram at collectednightmares. Rate us, review us wherever you get your podcasts, or uh, at least tell someone you know. Recommend us to somebody. Get us some more folks to listen. Horror films are our collective nightmares. Very small, minor, possible-ish spoiler for Crawl. Not even really. Not even really. No, never mind. Ignore that. It's late for you, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're condescending. It is. Oh my god, it was so bad. Yes. What time is it? Eleven? Ten thirty. Oh, that's not so bad. Okay. Cool. Yeah. I can't emotionally engage with this like I was all day. <laughs> but <laughs> but I want to play it for you because hopefully I can keep you up all night with irritation. Oh my god. You know it's I so bad. It wow. keeps going. Oh, I'm sure it does. I think, I think you turned it off, didn't you?
No, that was Did all the time first recording. It didn't time out. You sent me more. I know, but that one didn't time out. I don't like that time out means. I mean, that's the end of that. Okay, that was the end of that one. Yeah, listen to the other one too. It's arguably worse. So good luck with that. <laughs> so what is it? The best case scenario is this is some self-righteous liberal who like just wants you to feel bad and and guilty and like about yourself for divorcing so that you'll care about your kid. And worst case scenario is this is some conservative fuck who wants to shit all over you and tell you you're a shitty, terrible person because you're getting divorced, even though I am sure most folks going through a divorce already have plenty of concerns about their self-esteem and their worth as an individual. And so this is just some fuck conservative shitwad who's piling on at the worst possible moment. And doing that in the name of save the children you're ruining the kid who might not get a divorce in 30 years from now. And oh my God, family, save the children, some bullshit. Wow. I mean, it's court ordered. You have to take it in order to get a divorce. You have to pay for it in order to get a divorce. What do you have to pay for it? It's like 30 bucks. Somebody's taking a cut? There are companies who do this. So who's the company? They do all the court ordered parenting classes and so they, they have different levels this was like the lowest level one where like you didn't cause a problem or you're not like there's not some sort of abuse or something going on where you need like extra training or something says the state so this is just the like oh you want to get a divorce you have to understand that i don't know suck. yeah i guess <laughs> I, I mean just listen to somebody tell me i suck for hours? <laughs> I, okay. be better. I will say two two things in their defense, not that I'm defending them really, because overall it was horrible. But that second one that was really awful, that was all like, you know, this is going to be the worst thing that's ever <laughs> happened to your child ever. And I obviously was... you just don't even care about the kid anymore because <laughs> you heard that in the first message. And they're saying, that, oh, what you're doing is telling the kid that their life doesn't even matter more than winning an argument with your soon-to-be ex-spouse. Right. Okay. So, like, at the end of that one, the person who was... She narrated a lot of the videos and she says all this and then she sort of stops and she's like, well, that's really depressing, isn't it? Or something like that. She's like, you know, but here are some things you can do to make sure the outcome is not nearly as bad as that sounds. And so like they, they, but they, this comes up a lot in the podcast that 
as someone sitting in a vulnerable emotional position, you notice the messaging that's out there in society more possibly than someone else who's not sitting in that position. And I will tell you, there is so much messaging about you being a shitty person and a shitty parent if you're getting a divorce. Like mm-hmm. that is so prevalent that mm-hmm. nobody needs that told to them again. I, I I don't know who it is that has somehow missed that messaging because it's everywhere and it's it's horribly oppressive and it just keeps me up at night and it's awful. So it was almost funnier that she leads with that whoever sandcastle book, who knows who this person is, you know, here's what the experts say. This is going to be the most traumatic event in your child's whole entire life, which I honestly question that research. I mean, I don't know anything about this field, but I mean, what I, I don't know. It's 2021. Half of children, like really is every child like, oh, that's clearly the worst thing that's ever happened to me. I, I doubt it. But anyway, that they would lead with that and then she would jump in with like, oh, but you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be that bad. That's just, you can't do that. You can't make somebody sit through, like that was the beginning of the message. You can't make somebody sit through exactly what they're terrified of hearing and then be like, oh, but maybe that's an overreaction. You don't put that overreaction out there because it's awful. And there were so many videos that came from the child's perspective with that sappy music in the background. And it's like, I don't know who is not aware of that concern. I don't know who's sitting there not wondering what's this going to do to my child or will my child be okay? Or like, I just, to have a child speak to you about all of the horrible things that you're doing and how you're making them feel. I like, what's the alternative is the alternative supposedly better. Like that, that's somehow left out in this, like what harm does it do a child to not remedy a situation that's not working for one or both of the parents? Like, I, I just, I don't know. I, I was amazed that they, would put such traumatic and really triggering content in there. Other stuff was fine. There were, it was four hours, but there were long segments that were about like, how do you do a parenting plan and stuff that actually wasn't so bad. But I was amazed at how much of this was in there and how they can get away with making that court ordered. And uh, I just, I didn't know that this existed until today. And I'm really. I didn't either. I'm glad you made me listen to it. I am gobsacked that that is court ordered. That I and while well, I started out saying best case worst case scenario, I, I have plenty of problems with self righteous, do gooder, overly ambitious, whatever liberals. I cannot imagine this isn't some fucking conservative bullshit. Oh, we think somehow we need to shame anyone who's not gonna gut out the nuclear family, like you said, even if it means enduring abuse and poverty and fucking every, any other million of the million problems that happen between married people who stick it out when conditions are miserable because we have some sort of ideal that we're clinging to 1950 when it was a different world and it didn't really even exist then because it was only for the white upper middle class go MAGA I, this is just it's absolutely astounding you're right Great, yeah, give me a give me a couple of templates for here's how you schedule child shit, whatever. Fuck you, don't condescend to me about oh my god, I wouldn't That's what I think I'm never getting married, Lord. (laughs) I'd be up in the courthouse (laughs) like griping about this. You know, you didn't see it's so funny because my first reaction would be look up who this fuck Newman is, look up who this lady is, and look up who the company is who's actually getting paid for this, because I'm gonna start ranting about them 
I no, I emotionally got myself through the experience of having to do it, got my completion certificate sent off, and then tried to forget the emotional experience. And I expected useful stuff. I actually thought it might be useful. I thought it might talk about things like that. Yeah, like what kind of parenting schedules are good for different ages or like how do you how do you navigate the paperwork and how do you just just stuff that could be helpful. There was a huge section at the beginning that was all about the emotional experience for you as a the parent. Like like it was basically about like a breakup and what are the stages of grief and what might you go through and listening to long protracted videos of people talk about their breakup and even that felt weird and intrusive like why is the court sending me to this really crappy therapist everybody's situation is different and maybe you can gain something out of hearing a four-minute video clip of several different people discuss their divorce but or maybe you can just trigger people in ways that is not helpful you know and like not that you're this is the final stage where you're just filing the final paperwork right there's so there's a three-month waiting period from when you file the paperwork to when you can actually get it approved and this has to happen too and part of me feels like is this the attempt to like make you really rethink that you know i'll say does this just reeks of like the bullshit conservative like oh if you're gonna have an abortion you have to watch a video about like how whatever bullshit some some fucking bullshit whatever right because it it, because yeah it's like some last minute we're gonna i don't even know i don't even really think they're interested in changing their minds they just want to make the cruelty is the point right it's just i'm gonna shit on you we just feel like one more need to shit on you before you do something that we don't think is okay i'm sorry it's just i know it's why i was that's why i was all day and i just sorry (laughs) it felt that way you know what it felt honestly mostly it just felt really insensitive it felt like put together like how do you court order something that is that off the mark unhelpful and just that traumatic for people going through something that's already traumatic i i I don't understand that and i don't understand why the court feels so involved in the emotional aspects of it like again stuff that would be help with paperwork or help with like here's some common there are even sections on like communication and you know how do you communicate well without causing conflict and stuff like that and like that's kind of fine you know stuff like that is better at least but to delve for, you know, an hour, hour and a half of the four hour situation on what you might be feeling going through a breakup. And then beyond that, what your children might be feeling going through all of this. And it's just unnecessarily hurtful and not their, not the state's business, I would say, to get involved in. I don't know. It's such, like you said, you kind of got to that. It's such a presumption. It's such an enormous presumption. How about thank fucking God I'm away from this horrible person who is abusive and caustic and I'm thrilled my parents are finally getting divorced because now I can go live with the reasonable rational one. I'm not saying this applies to you, Laura, but yeah. but there's an enormous spectrum of reactions, I would think, uh, by kids in, in uh, divorce given the range of reasons why people get divorced and for them to just presume that, Oh, this is what is going on. And your kids are going to feel terrible. Absolutely. No matter what is just, it's, it's beyond the pale. I can understand why you just emotionally were like, I just need to get through this. I can't believe. Wow. I'm, 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 I'm just beside myself. Well, maybe somebody listening will, Did the screenshot actually come through? 
Yes. Just re- this that this was on the topic of yeah. Why are we? Why are you sending me to a really crappy online therapist for twenty minutes? To be rejected by someone doesn't mean you should also reject yourself, or that you should think of yourself as a lesser person. It doesn't mean that nobody will ever love you anymore. Remember that only one person has rejected you at the moment, and it only hurts so much because to you that person's opinion symbolized the opinion of the whole world of God. This they fucking made you fucking read this? I know, and that was like the start of one of the lessons. And I was like, what are you presuming? You don't know. I mean, that's just a big leap to assume that everybody reading this is going to feel terribly rejected as though rejected by God. (laughs) Like, what the heck? Or you'd be somebody like me. I fuck you. I give a shit about your God. That's a made up fucking funny baloney adult make believe friend. Joycelyn Soriano, author. Wow, this is just astounding. You didn't take any pictures of who? Who? Where's our uh, Church of Satan when you need them? <laughs> what is it? Satanic? Who are the satanic people who are like? If you're going to put up your crash, we get to put up Baphomet. <laughs> Can we get them on board with this? Or like... Fucking... An alternate version. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if they can make one that was... Oh, that's not like a bad Like the devil idea. has shunned you. We know you feel terrible. Because <laughs> you were looking forward to all the hot, hot loving in hell. <laughs> it's just... Well, well, I'm sorry you had to deal with that. I'm good for you for pushing through. I don't know if I could have done it. Good fucking gravy. It was a long day. <sighs> okay. I have a headache. Still, the three ibuprofen didn't kill it. Well... Um, Sure don't think I have. Cool. But uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't check. (laughs) I remember now. I hate wearing these headphones. (laughs) I hate it. What? They're too big. Yes, and everything sounds like a terrible <laughs> echo. I hate it. I hate it. I'm going to keep them on long enough to tell it sounds okay. Do All I right. sound too loud? Uh, I don't know. Not in mine. No? Okay. That might be your headphone dial, though. Yeah. It's me? I think so. Three, I think, is you. I thought I was two. I think no. I'm two. You, you Maybe plugged I'm into one and three. Oh, okay. So you're one. Oh, you're right. Well, that's better. Okay. Cool. I'm going to take them off now, okay? Uh, Do I need keep, them on? Keep saying some more stuff. About what? <laughs> Say some shit. I don't know. I'm trying to get levels here. Laura. How many Purge movies have there been? Four. Okay. And we only did one of them. Uh, so far. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the third? I can't boost signal anymore here. Uh, I guess that's just... How it is. Okay, that's fine. Uh, wait, what? That was the third one we just saw? Fourth. I mean, sorry, the third one that we did last time. And right. then this is the fourth, so we've done the last two. Uh, yes. My headache is only mostly gone. Did you take all three? Yes. I did. 
I don't know what to say. Uh, I gotta get my water. And your peanut butter cups? No. Just your water. Are they peanut butter cups or are they Reese's Pieces? Pieces. Did they not have any peanut butter cups? Divorce, you suck. Yeah, it was so strange because a lot of it was it was all from the perspective of the dumpy. Like, you know, it was just bizarre. <laughs> dumpy, huh? Well, it's like of the person who didn't leave, um, because it, a lot of it was like that thing you read. Oh about. right, like, like you've like, been rejected. Yeah, and like you know, it just it just it was just odd. And then they had a thing about stages of grief, and it was like, you know, bargaining. You might bargain with your spouse to, like, you know, get the relationship back and whatever. And it was, and then they made some note at the end, like, oh, but the person who leaves usually feels differently because whatever. And I thought, why is this so imbalanced that, like, the whole, they're spending, like, 45 minutes talking about how to cope and what kind of therapy you might need or whatever to, like, deal with these feelings of rejection. Let me ask this. Just generally, overall, did you feel like it was actually well-intentioned, or did you feel like it was... We're going to twist the knife before you actually get to get out of your marriage. It almost felt like there was a team of five people working on it, and some of them were well-intentioned and some weren't. I couldn't, I can't put it together. It wasn't an overall, it would, it shifted. There were parts that were super shitty, like the parts I yeah. showed you, and there were other parts that were just pragmatic and okay, and there were other parts that actually felt vaguely sensitive. Huh. So it was, it was weird, and I don't, I don't know, maybe it is actually like different people. I, I mean, right. it's a terrible idea. You can't, you can't. Oh, I'm not saying maybe it was a good idea. I was just, just trying to get, and just yeah. trying to get kind of more of your reaction. I feel I, it makes you want to, it, it makes me think of, or makes you wish it were like a Troy, Mc, Troy McClure from the old Simpsons. Phil Hartman would be the voice. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm from, you know, whatever cell phone video or whatever, oh, you know, so cellular. Um, that was totally ridiculous. I don't even remember him now, but that's, that's Isn't there also a social connection component? So like a feeling of connection to other people and obligation to others and the likelihood of that being reciprocated, like a little bit of a social contract component? Because I'm thinking about research that has used like bowling alleys as a stand-in for social connection. Which makes me think not only of rules, but also of just social engagement, feeling like you're part of a community. Do you remember where Anomi? Suicide. Sounds so confident, Laura. It was. I feel bad about myself. I think. (laughs) I hope I'm not wrong. Being better. Oh, yeah, because there's a gnomic suicide. So suicide, for anyone who cares while Marshall's slipping through the book, is research that Durkheim did where he looked at suicide rates in Protestant versus Catholic countries. You'll have to correct me if I get any of this wrong, but, and I believe the Protestants had higher suicide rates. Is that correct? Or is it the Catholics? I think it was the Protestants. And he tied it back to this idea of social connection, right? Of anime and ties within the community. And one of the, from um, I teach methods class, interesting perspective is that 
this is a, an example of a fallacy in conducting research in that he looked at the very macro level and assumed that that applied to the individual level. So he, he looked at suicide rates and religious preferences within countries on a large scale and saw this relationship and then um, tried to extrapolate that out to the individual level and say, why is it that individual people who are Catholic or who are Protestant would be more likely to commit suicide? And that's a problem when you're conducting research, when you translate from one unit of analysis down to another. That's all very impressive. I haven't looked at this in a long time. What I will say, which is kind of abdicating my responsibility as a sociologist, (laughs) is to say to George Simpson's George Simpson, who edited Suicide in the Free Press, this book's been out for like 150 fucking years. Produce an index. Put together an index. Jesus fucking Christ. (laughs) That's the section. I don't know. I'm rolling in this book. (laughs) Get an index. Oh, my God. No anno me in the Division of Labor and Society index. There is an index in that one. That's the free press, so it's even worse. They did it in one of their fucking books. I don't know what the drop-off in audience is. <laughs> All right. All right, we can just like... No, no, I blame myself. I'm not blaming you. I blame myself. This is something I should know, Laura. I'm so disappointed in myself. I have no real excuse. Here, let's, let's do a little cheat sheet. A little cheat. This is why I have books. Oh, my. Consumerist junk that would not help me in a disaster. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I don't remember if it's the Protestants or the Catholics who are more likely to commit suicide. I want to say it was the Protestants. It, it appears prominently in both the Division of Labor and Society and Suicide. Oh, because the Division of Labor increases anime because people are on their own. They're not interacting with others and feeling more tightly knit with the rest of the community when they're trying to accomplish things. Their tasks become very specialized and then different from their neighbor, right? Dang, look at you! Anime emerges through society's transition from mechanical to organic solidarity. Increasing division of labor brings about social integration by organic solidarity, but where, but where economic change is too fast for the growth of moral regulation to keep pace with increasing differentiation and specialization, then an abnormal and or, or then an abnormal or anomic pathological division of labor occurs. Wow, that's not something I want to listen to and try to make sense of. Whatever. Absence, breakdown, confusion, or conflict in the norms of society. I don't know anything else. What else are we trying to clarify? Okay. We can move on from enemy assist. Um. There will be spoilers in this film. 